0: Section 23 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 8. Edited by Francis Rolt-Wheeler. Part 3. Mathematical Applications. Chapter 4. Mechanical Principles. It is the privilege of the modern to make the most of an environment of mechanism, a development consequent upon the growing complexity of society. This, while it adds greatly to the luxury of the whole, reduces the sphere of the individual, making it no longer possible to be well-versed in many lines. The day of the jack-at-all-trades is past, and the day of the expert has come. Numbers form the connecting link between theory and the application of theory to practical arts. In every mechanical principle, mathematical formulae are implied, though they may be extremely simple. It is for the mathematician to find out how far experimental confirmation of a theory can be pushed and where a new hypothesis is necessary. Facts apparently unconnected are found to have their origin in a common source, and often only the mathematician can trace their connection. More than this, the mathematician is able to draw corollaries and secondary truths from a given principle which the experimentalist alone does not discover. Mechanical science, said William J. M. Ranking, enables its possessor to plan a structure or machine for a given purpose without the necessity of copying some existent example To compute the theoretical limit of the strength and stability of a structure, or the efficiency of a machine of a particular kind. To ascertain how far an actual structure or a machine fails to attain that limit, and to discover the cause and remedy of such shortcoming. To determine to what extent, in laying down principles for practical use, it is advantageous for the sake of simplicity to deviate from the exactness required by pure science and to judge how far an existing practical rule is founded on reason, how far on custom, and how far on error. A signal illustration of the truth of these words is offered in the famous instance of falling bodies. Aristotle proved, to his own satisfaction it seemed, and told the world at large that heavy bodies fall to earth faster than lighter ones, and it was left for Galileo, more than a thousand years later, to disprove a statement whose truth or falsity it would seem might have been established by anyone it required mathematical science to confute experimental error figure fifteen arm as a lever weight is raised by shortening of muscle m muscle w weight x point of application y fulcrum Not only has mechanical nomenclature been largely taken from animals, but many of the principal mechanical devices have pre-existed in them. Examples of levers of all three orders are to be found in the bodies of animals. The human foot contains instances of the first and second, and the forearm of the third order of lever. The kneecap is practically a part of a pulley. There are several hinges and some ball and socket joints with perfect lubricating arrangements. Lungs are bellows and the vocal organs comprise every requisite of a perfect musical instrument. The heart is a combination of four force pumps acting harmoniously together. The wrist, ankle, and spinal vertebra form universal joints. The eyes may be regarded as double lens cameras power to adjust local length and able by their stereoscopic action to gauge size, solidity, and distance. The nerves form a complete telegraph system with separate up-and-down lines and a central exchange. The circulation of the blood is a double-line system of canals in which the canal liquid and canal boats move together, making the complete circuit twice a minute, distributing supplies wherever needed and taking up return loads wherever ready without stopping. It is also a heat-distributing apparatus, carrying heat from wherever it is generated or in excess to wherever it is deficient, and establishing a general average. Archimedes was almost the only philosopher among the ancients, so far as is known, who formed clear and correct notions concerning the simple machines. He acquired firm possession of the idea of pressure, which lies at the root of mechanical science and of equilibrium. The proof of the properties of the lever given in Archimedes' Equiponderance of Planes holds its place in textbooks to this day. His estimate of the efficiency of the lever is expressed in the saying attributed to him Give me a fulcrum on which to stand, and I will move the earth. The equiponderance treats of solids, while the book on floating bodies treats of hydrostatics or the equilibrium of fluids. It was long a common practice for mechanicians to recognize six simple machines or six devices representing the first principles of mechanics. These are the pulley, the lever, the wedge, the screw, the inclined plane, and the wheel and axle. In the latter part of the 18th century, however, Lagrange simplified the mechanical principles, including them all under two, the principle of the lever and the principle of the inclined plane. Every machine that exists, from the egg-beater to the escalator, is constructed by the application of these principles, or a combination of them. The lever consists of a bar or rigid piece of any shape, acted upon at different points, by two forces, which severally tend to rotate in opposite directions about a fixed axis. It was beautifully demonstrated by Archimedes that the power of one end and the weight, or resistance, at the other, are in equilibrium under certain conditions, the simplest being the case in which the load is ten times as great as the power, but the power is ten times as far from the fulcrum as the load is from the fulcrum or stated otherwise, the two forces are in equilibrium when they are inversely as the length of their respective arms. There are three different kinds of levers, according to the relative positions of the three points, the fulcrum, the point of application of power, and the point of application of the load. The handle of a common pump is a lever of the first class, in which the fulcrum is between the other two points. The piston and the water are the weight, the hand of the worker is the power, while the pivot on which the handle turns is the fulcrum. The ordinary steelyard is another example of a lever of this class. The second class is formed by levers in which the weight is between the fulcrum and the power, as is illustrated by the wheelbarrow. The axle of the wheel is the fulcrum in this case, The load in the barrow is the weight, and the handles of the barrow are the levers. The boat with its oars is another example of this class of levers. In the third class of levers, the point of application of the power lies between the fulcrum and the load, and is illustrated by the lifting of a ladder when one end is resting on the ground. These distinctions are of slight importance, however, since they become confused as the machines to which they are applied become more complicated. The Archimedean laws, however, which apply the levers, are extremely simple, and illustrate the beauty with which physical or mechanical phenomena of apparently diverse types may often be reduced to law. First, the two extreme forces must always act in the same direction. Secondly, the middle one must act in the opposite direction and be equal to the sum of the other two. And thirdly, the magnitude of the extreme forces is inversely proportional to their distance from the middle one. Probably of all devices of man, none is more frequently in evidence than the rope tackle used in hoisting, and known as the pulley. This is a contrivance for balancing a great force against a small one, or for lifting a big load with a small power. Its sole use is to produce equilibrium. It does not save work unless indirectly in some unmechanical way. The pulley is a lever with equal arms, but when it turns, the attachment of the forces are moved. The wheel and axle also one of the simple machines, works indirectly on the principle of the lever. In its primary form, it consists of a cylindrical axle on which a wheel, concentric with the axle, is firmly fastened. A rope is usually attached to the wheel, and the axle is turned by means of a lever. The rope acts as in the pulley, that is, upon the principle of the lever, which explains all the possible phenomena exhibited by the pulley and the wheel and axle, just as the principle of the inclined plane explains all the phenomena of the wedge and the screw. The inclined plane in mechanics is a plane inclined to the horizon, or forming with a horizontal plane, any angle, whatever except a right angle. It is one of the two fundamental machines, the other being the lever. The power necessary to sustain any weight on an inclined plane is, to the weight as the height of the plane, to its length. Figure 16, Tower Moved by Windlass and Pulleys, from a 16th century print. This was first proved by Stephen in the 16th century. If the inclined plane, with its horizontal plane as a base, and the line connecting the two planes be considered as a right-angled triangle, the weights proportional to the hypotenuse and the height of the triangle balance. The screw and the wedge, both called simple machines, are special applications of this principle. The wedge consists of a very acute-angled triangular prism of some hard material, which is driven in between objects to be separated, or into anything to be split. It is, of course, one of the commonest of implements, as is also the screw, but in the apparently simple action of these two devices lie the germs of some of the most effective instruments for increasing man's natural power. It is necessary to understand the exact function of each part of this apparently innocuous machine, the screw, in order to follow its development in the more complicated inventions. The screw is a cylinder of wood or metal having a spiral ridge, the thread, running round it, usually turning in a hollow cylinder in which a spiral channel is cut corresponding to the ridge. The convex and concave spirals, with their supports, are often called the screw and nut, and also the external or male screw and the internal or female screw respectively. The screw is virtually a spiral-inclined plane, only the inclined plane is commonly used to overcome gravity while the screw is more often used to overcome some other resistance. Screws are right and left according to the direction of the spiral. Screws have a variety of uses, the most important of which are two. First, they are used for balancing forces, as the jack screw against gravity, the propeller screw against the resistance of water, and the screw press against elasticity. Secondly, they are used for magnifying a motion and rendering it easily manageable and measurable, as in the screw feet of instruments, micrometer screws, and the like. Hunter's screw is a double screw consisting of a principal male screw that turns in a nut, but the cylinder of which, concentric with its axis, is formed by a female screw of different pitch that turns on a secondary but fixed male screw the device furnishes an instrument of slow but enormous lifting power without the necessity of finely cut and consequently frail threads. Everything else being equal, the lifting power of this screw increases exactly as the difference between the pitches of the principal male screw and the female screw diminishes in accordance with the principle of virtual velocities. Archimedes himself made several experimental applications of his screw, among which were a railway and a machine for lifting water. In the railway, a continuous shaft rotates on pillars between two lines of rails and propels the car by means of a screw which engages in a pedestal attached to the car. The instrument for lifting water, technically called the Archimedean screw, is made by forming a spiral tube within or by winding a flexible tube spirally without a cylinder. Figure 17 The Archimedean Screw. When the cylinder is placed in an inclined position and the lower end is immersed in water, its revolution will cause the water to move upward through the spiral chambers. The mechanical powers, as the six simple machines have long been called, are often in evidence in modern inventions almost in their original simplicity. The screw propeller, for instance, consists of a continuous spiral vein on a hollow core running lengthwise of a vessel. This is but an extension and amplification of the screw and was also devised by Archimedes. The modern screw propeller is attached to the exterior end of a shaft protruding through the hull of a vessel at the stern. It consists of a number of spiral metal blades either cast together in one piece or bolted to a hub. In some special cases, as in ferry boats, there are two screws, one at each end of the vessel. In some war vessels, transverse shafts with small propellers have been used to assist in turning quickly. An arrangement of screws now common is the twin screw system, in which two screws are arranged at the stern, each on one of two parallel shafts, which are driven by power independently one of the other. By stopping or slowing up one shaft while the other maintains its velocity, very rapid turning can be effected by twin screws, which have, moreover, the advantage that, one being disabled, the vessel can still make headway with the other some vessels designed to attain high speed have been constructed with three screws a very great variety of forms have been proposed for screw propeller blades but the principle of the original true screw is still in use variations in pitch and modifications of the form of the blades have been adopted with success by individual constructors the actual area of the screw propeller is measured on a plane perpendicular to the direction in which the ship moves The outline of the screw projected on that plane is the actual area, but the effective area is, in good examples, from 0.2 to 0.4 greater than this, and it is the effective area and the mean velocity with which the water is thrown astern that determine the mass thrown backward. The mass thrown backward and the velocity with which it is so projected determine the propelling power. A kind of feathering propeller has also been used, but has not been generally approved. The mechanism of nature has offered suggestions for many inventions, one of which provides an illustration of many others. The pedrail, for instance, which is a rail moving on feet, is constructed on the principle of the horse. A horse has practically two wheels, its front legs one, its back legs the other. The shoulder and hip joints form the axes, and the legs the spokes. So the pedrail has wheels, the spokes of which, to any number, are connected at their outer ends by flat plates. As each angle of the plates is passed, the wheel falls plumb onto the next plate. The greater the number of spokes, the less will be each successive jar or step and consequently the perfect wheel is theoretically one in which the sides have been so much multiplied as to be infinitely short. With the exception of Archimedes and a few mathematicians of the Alexandrian school, the ancients and the generations of the Middle Ages slept, so far as mechanical science was concerned, in an untroubled peace not until the seventeenth century were some of the aristotelian myths of science banished when galileo aroused the mechanical and scientific genius of the age among the curious vagarities of imagination which have deluded the human mind none is more interesting than the idea of perpetual motion which has been followed for centuries with fatuous hope perpetual motion in a mechanical sense is a motion that is preserved and continuously renewed of itself without the aid of any external cause. It is, however, one of the chimeras of the brain which has its aspects of plausibility for the Tyro. Many historic machines purporting to display the power of perpetual motion have brought their inventors to poverty if not to despair. One authoritative writer says, In order to produce a perpetual motion, we have only to remove all the obstacles which oppose that motion, and it is obvious that if we could do this, any motion whatever would be a perpetual motion. But how are we to get rid of these obstacles? Can the friction between two touching bodies be entirely annihilated? Or has any substance yet been found that is void of friction? Can we totally remove all the resistance of the air, which is a force continually varying? And does the air at all times retain its impeding force? These things cannot be removed so long as the present laws of nature continue to exist. Every attempt to produce a self-moving machine has been in open defiance to the coordinated relations of force and motion, And any man who comprehends this law of velocity will no sooner attempt to solve the problem of perpetual motion than to climb upon his own shoulders as a higher point of observation. But in the search for an impossibility, so many valuable and practical certainties have been demonstrated that perhaps no time has been absolutely thrown away. As alchemy fostered and developed chemistry, so the search after perpetual motion has taught scientists how to apply force through complicated machinery and has given rise to many new devices figure 18 ferguson's machine to show the fallacy of perpetual motion schemes the axle is placed horizontally and the spokes turn in a vertical position the spokes are jointed as shown and to each of them is fixed a frame in which a weight d moves When any spoke is in a horizontal position, the weight D in it falls down and pulls the weighted arm A of the then vertical spoke straight out by means of a cord C going over the pulley B to the weight D. But when the spokes come about to the left hand, their weights fall back and cease pulling, so that the spokes then bend at their joints and the balls at their ends come nearer the center of the left side as the balls or weights at the right hand side are farther from the center than they are on the left. It might be supposed that this machine would turn round perpetually, but it is a mere balance. In treating of perpetual motion, that grand secret for the discovery of which those dictators of philosophy, Democritus, Pythagoras, Plato, did travel unto the gymnosophists and Indian priests, its history would be a fascinating but tragic tale. Each contrivance hitherto planned or experimented upon has been proved fallible. Paracelsus built a little world, Cornelius Drebbel invented a planetarium for King James, and Peregrinus suggested the magnetical globe of Torella, which he thought might be kept in motion by pieces of steel and lodestones, and Bishop Wilkins himself made an application of Archimedes' screw. But all were alike found inadequate to the grand end for which they were designed. End of Section 23 End of Chapter 4 Mechanical Principles